Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Dr. William Hasker. We're going to be talking about the problem of evil and looking at different models of God. So Dr. Hasker, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Um, well, thank you. I'm super pumped. I'm curious, what's that thing in your background? It looks like, looks like it's just to your right. It's like a bird or something, but it's very colorful. Uh, I just yeah, noticed it's, that. It's a, uh, it's a Mexican uh, sculpture, you know, that uh, picked up in a museum, but it's, I, I, I kind of like it, you know. I, I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, today we're going to be talking about like the problem of evil and different models of God. So, do you want to talk about first, Doctor Hasker, like a little bit about like who you are and your interest in this topic that we're discussing today? Well, I'm a retired professor of philosophy from Huntington University. Um, I've been I've been interested in. I I think you know I think anyone who is interested in philosophy, religion, or for that matter, in Christianity at all, is almost forced to come to grips with the problem of evil. Because we, we all find ourselves wondering at the extent and the terribleness, really, of evil that exists in our world. And we have a hard time with this. And we wonder how, if, if God is good and powerful, how can it be that God allows all of this evil? And so it's, it's an incredibly popular topic, but for a very good reason. And many, many people, both believers and non-believers, see this problem of evil as maybe the probably the most serious objection to belief in in god uh, and in a god like christianity talks about and uh, this is not only something that appeals to philosophers but uh, everyday ordinary people you know it, it's just something we we find it hard to get away from and i i think that for a for a Christian thinker, well, first of all, the most important thing or the most necessary thing is to show, if we can, that, that the evil in the world is not a good reason to disbelieve in the existence of God. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it may cause us to wonder, it may cause us perplexity, but it's not a compelling reason not to believe in God. And since many people think that it is such a reason, there is work to be done there. A secondary objective is we would like to have some kind of understanding of the reasons why God has created and maintains a world with so much evil in it. Uh, the name for this, this kind of effort is a theodicy. It's uh, strictly a justification of God, if you want that. But it's, it's trying to gain some sort of understanding. Uh, clearly, any understanding we have is going to be very partial, very limited, very imperfect. But we'd rather have something imperfect than just nothing. Mm -hmm. well, one thing I want to say that we are not, should not be trying to do is reach a point where we're comfortable and at peace with the evil in the world. The, Pope, the poet Alexander Pope wrote in one of his less inspired couplets whatever is is right that can't be true i don't think it can be true and it certainly isn't i think a biblical or christian viewpoint so we're, we're not trying to make peace with the evil in the world but we're trying to gain some understanding of it and i i i think i've uh, for many many years i've seen that as an important objective 
Mm. So the project of the Odyssey then is to try to like map out um, an explanation of like why God would allow evil. And like, even if there was some sort of complete the Odyssey where we had all the answers, boom, this is it. This is why God allows evil. Um, we're done here. That doesn't mean we can just like sit back in our chairs and like not worry about evil. Like we should care about it at a personal level and be working to like fight against it and like trying to like alleviate suffering and things like this. Is, is this what you're trying to get at? Well, certainly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I mean, there, there may be reasons why God allows certain things to ha- evil things, bad things to happen. But that does, it doesn't follow from that that we shouldn't do anything to to try to counteract the evil in the world. Um, but we'll probably get into that later on. But that that certainly is is, is what I think is the right approach. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's important for Christians, like we should think about the problem of evil because one, we like we experience it, like we experience suffering and things like this. And it's also important to understand, like, what is God doing in this world? Um, and like our views of the problem of evil are going to help that. So I'm curious then, like Dr. Hasker, how have your views on the problem of evil, like have they changed over time? Like um, as you've thought about this for many years, like how have things changed for you as you think about it? Well, I, I, I don't think there's been any abrupt you know, reversal in my in my views, I think the different uh, pieces have just sort of gradually fit together until I've arrived at some some understandings that I am, let's say, for the time being, satisfied with. That is, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I have the last word. Other people will have other and better ideas, and and the good whatever good ideas I have all trace back to the work of other people as well. So, but, uh, but for, for the time being, I've sort of reached a, a balance point, if you like. And, uh, and so that's what I'm, you know, ma- mainly going to be talking about today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So what then, like, as we're looking at the problem of evil, what are some of the traditional approaches that we've seen to try to answer the problem of evil? Well, uh, the, uh, there are several main approaches, and I think it's it's very crucial uh, in your approach to the problem of evil is how do you think God works in the world? W- what is your understanding of God and God's relationship with the world? And I think that sort of um, sorts out the major approaches. One approach is what is known Process theology. Process theology was extremely popular, let's say, outside of conservative Christian circles, um, oh, say, 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, Process theology claims to have a really good solution for the problem of evil. Uh, Their solution basically is that God can't do a whole lot about the evil in the world. According to process theology, God's power is quite limited. A uh, quick summary of that is to say that God can only persuade, but he cannot compel anything to happen. That is, God is trying, so to speak, to lead and direct the world, the progress of the world in the direction of good. But when evil happens, God can't do a lot about it directly. He can only keep trying to persuade the people and other agents involved to do better. Well, if you limited God, if you limit God's power in that way, then you can't really blame God if things don't work out so well. But many people find that unsatisfying because uh, as the wife of one prominent process theologian said, I need a God who can get things done. That is, we, we want God to have enough power that we can call upon him and that he can, he can work in the world. And certainly, biblically, 
God is pictured as having a lot, great deal more power than process theology uh, allows for. So I think if you're concerned to be some kind of biblical Christian, that's not really much of an option. Mm -hmm. Now, the other extreme from that is the view that we sometimes call Calvinism, or in Roman Catholic circles, it may be Thomism for Thomas Aquinas, but anyhow, theological determinism. This is the idea that God has simply decreed, decided everything that's going to happen, and everything that happens, happens exactly as God decided that it should happen. God has total control. You might say, if you're unsympathetic to this view, God is the ultimate control freak. God needs to have everything happen just the way he's decided. Now, so, some people find this very satisfying, and I, and I will admit, right out, some very important theologians and Christian thinkers have gone for this. But I personally think it's a terrible view. What this means is that every bit of evil and suffering and sin in the world exists precisely because God has decided that this is what he wants in his world. And I think that's a terrible view to hold. And of course, if like most Christians, you, you believe that some human beings will not enjoy eternal salvation, that they will be damned, condemned, then God has deliberately decided that there will be some persons, maybe many pe persons, who are damned, who are condemned, simply to satisfy God. And I think that's a terrible, that's a terrible view to hold. And something else that I think people usually don't recognize, if you hold to this view, to theological determinism, then God is, you're bound to think that God is pleased, really delighted with everything that happens in the world. Because if he didn't like something that happened, he could have decided that it would happen differently. So God is completely delighted with all of the evil and suffering that ever happens. And if you read the Bible, that, that doesn't fit at all with what the Bible says about God. The Bible shows us that in many respects, God is unhappy with the way things happen in the world. So uh, I, I view Calvinism or the theological determinism as especially, specifically, a bad view that, that, to have, that has no prospect for having any sort of decent solution to the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, now, obviously, there are a lot of people who disagree with that. Uh, willing to talk with them, but that's my conclusion. Yeah, I think that's great kind of, yeah, so did I interrupt you? Anything else you want to say there, Dr. Hasker? Mm -hmm. Well, okay, suppose we bring free will into the picture, and then if God allows us humans to make free choices between good and evil, then sometimes evil is going to result, but it looks like God is, let's say, pretty much not to blame for evil that we have chosen. But now it becomes important to consider what kind of knowledge does God have about uh, knowledge, in particular knowledge beforehand, about the evil that would result in the world from his creating a world like this. <clears throat> well, one interesting fact, and one that I think a lot of people don't 
recognize or appreciate is that for God just to know what is going to happen doesn't help God at all in planning and deciding what kind of world to create. Let me say it again. For God to just to know the future by itself doesn't help God at all in deciding what kind of world to create. And to see why this is so, suppose we we picture God, and you know, allow me to be a little anthropomorphic. God has ahead of him this complete picture of the future. Everything is going to happen. And he's looking at this picture and deciding what he's going to do. Well, what can what decisions can he make? And the answer, if you think about it, is God can't make any decisions at all about the future because the future is already decided. It's all out there ahead of him. It's, uh, it's, all, it's already too late to make things any different. So God just knowing the future doesn't help at all, doesn't change the picture in any way concerning his decisions. Now, in order for knowledge of the future to be useful for God, God needs to know what would happen if a certain situation were to, to, to occur, which means that he has to know concerning us free human beings what we would decide in any possible situation where we might be faced with a choice. And these statements about what we would do in a choice situation, a situation which may never actually arise, these have come to be called counterfactuals of freedom. That is, they, they, they tell us what, or, or tell God, they don't tell us because we don't know them. They tell, tell God what we would do in any possible situation where we may, we're going to make a free choice. Um, now, these counterfactuals of freedom in a certain way limit, well, they do, they limit God's options. For instance, you know, maybe God would have preferred a world in which Adam and Eve were tempted in the Garden of Eden, and they refused the temptation. They remained faithful and obedient to God. Maybe God would have preferred that. But in fact, the counterfactuals of freedom tell God that if he puts them in that situation, they will succumb. They will, they will fall into sin. Now, that doesn't mean that this is bound to happen because God may choose not to create them or not create, to create Adam and Eve or not to put them in that situation. But if he does put them in that situation, then the counterfactuals tell God that they will sin, and and God doesn't have any choice about that. Mm. Now, what this means is that God has not all of the control that he has according to Calvinism or determinism. He doesn't have total control in the sense that he can't decide to create Adam and Eve and have them put in that situation and resist the temptation. On the other hand, God knows for sure exactly what will happen if he does put them in that situation. And if you generalize this, God knows precisely the outcome of any set of 
creative decisions that God might make. So you can put it this way. God may not get exactly everything that he would most desire, but he can be sure of getting exactly the world that he plans for. And some people find this very reassuring. Okay. Um, it, it's, it's probably the only way that we can have genuine free will, the, the power to decide different ways in various situations, and yet God has ultimately complete control over what happens in the sense that he sets out his plan and can guarantee that it happens in that one particular way. Now, one one big problem with this is that many philosophers, many Christian philosophers, many others, think that this is impossible because there aren't any such truths as the counterfactuals of freedom. That is, there isn't any truth which says exactly what you would do in any given situation that you've never been confronted with. The truth about that only emerges, emerges if you're put in the situation and actually make the choice. Now, whether there are these truths is hugely controversial. It's a very complicated controversy. We're not going to go into it now. So uh, people whose heads are starting to spin, you can forget about that. That's another argument. But suppose that middle knowledge were true what would be the implications for the problem of evil? Well, one implication is, again, that somewhat like for determinism, any evil that occurs in the world is one that God has specifically planned for and God has acted in a way that so that that evil is bound to happen, okay? This is part of his plan. Uh, you know, whatever happens is part of God's plan. Then you ask, well, why does God permit this evil? And it looks like the answer has to be God has permitted any given evil because somehow he can get a better world with this evil included in it, then evil. Now, that isn't immediately absurd. I mean, sometimes bad things lead to a result that would be, that is better than what you could have had without that bad thing happening. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe, may, maybe, you do something that is unkind and deeply offends and hurts someone, some, someone's feelings. But then you realize that you've done wrong. You apologize. You're genuinely sorry. The person forgives you. And as a result, you become closer friends than you were to begin with. Well, then something good has resulted from the evil. So it, it's not absurd that evil can sometimes lead to a greater good. But when you try to generalize that, it becomes really hard to believe. It seems to just about everybody, I think, that there are plenty of evil things that happen in the world that do not bring about a greater good. Mm. Uh, William Rowe, a, a, an atheist philosopher who uh, used to teach at Purdue University, came up with one famous example. Uh, think of a forest fire in which a, a, a fawn, a young deer, is trapped in the fire and severely burned. 
and it survives after that for several days in severe pain until it eventually dies. Well, what can be the greater good that comes about as a result of that fawn's suffering in severe pain for several days before it dies, it's really hard to come up with any even possible answer. <clears throat> or let me take a more contemporary reference. Think of the invasion of the Ukraine by Russia at the command of the Russian dictator Vladimir Putin. There have been many thousands of deaths on both sides. Millions of people have been displaced. Huge amounts of property have been destroyed in, in Ukraine. There's a very real threat of a worldwide food shortage in which many, many people could end up dying of hunger. Now, what possible good can come of that that would outweigh all of these terrible consequences? Uh, I, I can't think of anything at all plausible. One good thing may be that this has reinvigorated the NATO coalition, which was showing signs of getting a little rusty, but that can't possibly outweigh the terrible harms that we're talking about. And I think if, if you're honest and think about your experience and think about the things that you know about and that happened in the world, there are many, many examples of evils that don't seem to bring about any greater good. And this is a problem uh, for a Molinist because a Molinist is pretty well virtually forced to say that any evil that occurs does lead somehow to a greater good. So what's the way out? Well, the, the, the most popular way out by far is what is known as skeptical theism. But this has, a, this has a very particular meaning. Skeptical theism begins by accepting the assumption that any evil that occurs in the world has to lead to a greater good. The skeptical theism then points out that if there is a God, then God knows much more about the possible goods that can outweigh various evils than we do. And that's obviously true. Even an atheist will admit that. An atheist will say, will admit that if there is a God, God knows more about the goods that, can out, that outweigh than evils in the world than we do. But the skeptical theist has to hold something a lot stronger than that. And the ultimately, and I've argued this in, in several places, the skeptical theist has to say that we have basically no ability at all to evaluate the long run good and evil consequences of anything that happens. We have no ability at all to make these judgments. Here's an example, uh, and it, it's one that is accepted by one of the most prominent skeptical theists, Michael Bergman, Christian who teaches at Purdue University. And Bergman has accepted, well, consider two lives, the life of Saddam Hussein, the former ruler of Iraq, and the life of Mother Teresa, a Catholic nun who gave her life to caring for the, the poor and the sick in Calcutta in India. Mm. Now, which of these two lives makes 
more of a contribution to the goodness of the world. You might say, if, if you were choosing to make a world, would you prefer to have a world with Saddam Hussein in it and not Mother Teresa, or a world with Mother Teresa and not Saddam Hussein? Hmm. Uh, I'll give you two choices <laughs> as to which of those you would. But what, Bert, what, I, what, what a, a, Molin, a, a skeptical theist must say, and Bergman has accepted this, is that we have no idea at all. It's not that we're just not certain. We have not even the faintest idea whether one of these lives makes more of a contribution to the goodness of the world than the other. Hmm. And I say, that's just crazy. That's nuts. And furthermore, well, going on from that, the skeptical theist has to say, we have basically no ability to avail, evaluate the, law, the likely long-run good or bad consequences of anything, anything that we do. Now, it's not just that we can't be sure or that there can be surprises and so on and so forth. That, that's all true. But that's not what the skeptical theist needs to say. What he needs to say is that we have no clue whether we're going, well, uh, suppose I see you uh, about, to, uh, about to cross the street in front of a, a, uh, an onrushing taxi cab. Now, what should I do? Well, mm. the only sensible thing is I better grab you and pull you back. <laughs> yeah. But why should I do that? I mean, if, if you are run over by the taxi cab, that will be because God sees that your being run over is, in the long run, a great good, a wonderful thing for the world. Hmm. And, if, and if, if that wouldn't be the case, then God won't allow you to be run over. Well, uh, <laughs> you can see the problem. Yeah. So, so, so I think for those reasons, I think skeptical theism is not a good answer for anyone, a good way for anyone to go, even though it's it's unfortunately somewhat popular at present. And it's, it's frankly, it's, it's hard for me to see how a Molinist can help up with a solution for the problem of evil other than skeptical theism. Uh, I think is why it's, it's fairly popular at present. Mm -hmm. Now we come to the good guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, you knew there had, there had to be a happy ending for this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, open theism holds what many people think uh, see as a, a rather radical view that, okay, concerning the future actions of free creatures, there are no certain truths, okay? Mm. Uh, there may be, uh, often are, probabilities. Maybe if you're in a certain situation, it's more likely that you'll do one thing than another. But if you genuinely have free will, then it is not certain in advance which way you will go, which you will, way you will do. Mm. Now, this means, one, one thing this means is that God doesn't have a complete, final, and absolute plan for the world and the way things will happen. God knows, of course, infinitely more about this than you or I or any human being ever could know. God knows totally everything that's happened in the world up to now and everything about the present state of the world. He knows 
your and my thoughts and the thoughts of thoughts and intentions of every person on the earth. And God, of course, knows perfectly all the laws of nature that he is that he has implanted in the world. And so he knows what will happen in the world given these laws of nature. Hmm. And so God, and furthermore, since God is all powerful, and open via strongly affirm this, since God is all powerful, God is able to do things in the world that don't de totally depend on what, uh, on other things that are operating within the world. You know? mm. uh, I mean, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he didn't depend on Jesus' body somehow regenerating itself. God was able to do this by God's own power. So, so God has a lot of control, a lot of power over what happens. But God doesn't have a complete detailed picture of everything that will happen. And so the idea of, uh, of God's, of everything, every bad thing that happens having, having to be outweighed or compensated by a greater good, that doesn't apply. That just isn't, isn't part of the picture. God can, because of his great power and his great love, he can guarantee that in the end, good is going to win out over evil. Uh, my book on the problem of evil is entitled The Triumph of God. Oh, I'll put in a plug here. Mm. Uh, uh, let's see. Can you see? Yeah. Oh, you had it. There you go. Uh, the Triumph of God over Evil. That's available from InterVarsity and also from, from Amazon.com. While I'm mentioning it, here's another book, God and the Problem of Evil, Five Views. That's also for, available for Mentor Varsity. Uh, that covers in more detail the views that I talked about earlier, represented mm -hmm. by people who actually hold these views. So uh, you can read about theological determinism without having my commentary on it if you want to. <laughs> okay, but any, anyway, God, God can guarantee that ultimately things will turn out for, for the best, for good. But there can be bad things that happen along the way. And these bad things are really bad. They're really evil. Their God wish would not happen. It, mm -hmm. it may be God did not want Vladimir Putin to decide on the invasion of uh, Ukraine. Uh, from all we know, this is all just down to one man's decision. There wasn't anything inevitable about it in, in the uh, way history was going otherwise, but it, it all depended on Vladimir Putin, Putin, who wants to rebuild the great empire that existed under Russian communism, and Ukraine is a place to, to go to work on that. Well, maybe God didn't want that. Maybe God is unhappy about that. But it was Putin who decided this, not God. And, and there are already great evils coming from that and maybe even greater evils in the future. Uh, we'll have to see how that works out. Now, at this point, we begin to ask, well, still, why did God create a world like this one where so much evil does in fact occur? Even hmm. if in the end it's going to be good, why does God, did God create a, a world like this? And this is where the enterprise of theodicy uh, really kicks in. Where, 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 uh, because 
we're, we're not we're not now trying to account for each individual instance of evil and explain why that evil led to a greater good or why that that evil uh, was permitted to occur. Mm. We can't do that. We can't do that. We can't. We don't know enough to do that. And we accept that. But can we get some glimpse of why the world overall is like it is? Well, I, th I think we can. I, I think we can, uh, we can have at least the beginnings of a decent theodicy. Mm. I think it, uh, one helpful distinction that people have made here is the distinction between moral evil and natural evil, okay? Mm. Moral evil is evil that results from morally wrong choices and actions carried out by free creatures, like human beings and, and others. Natural evil is evil and suffering that results simply from the operation of natural causes uh, and, and is not in any direct way the result of bad, morally bad choices. Uh, William Rowe's example of the fawn dying in the forest fire, that would be an example of natural evil. The, the fawn hasn't done anything wrong. The forest fire, we may assume, was started by lightning and not by any human mistake and so on. And so, so this is severe suffering that results simply from the operation of nature. Well, Okay, so we, we can consider these somewhat separately, though they, they mingle together in practice. What about moral evil then? Well, to begin with, it's good that there should be morally free beings that have a choice between good and evil. This is one of the things that makes God's world significant that makes it a world that was worthwhile for God to create. At least I, I believe that that's true. I think that's a defensible, uh, defensible way to take. take. Mm -hmm. And given that it's good that there should be free creatures, it's also a good thing that in many, if not all situations, these creatures should be allowed to make their own decisions and to abide by the consequences. Uh, John Wesley, famous theologian, would even further said, he said that God can't give, grant to a, a, a creature free will, and then take it back. Hmm. It's like God in, in giving us free will is, is promising that we will be allowed to make our own choices. Hmm. Now, that's not saying that God could never interfere with anything a person does, but for free will to be meaningful, then most of the time, things we have to be able to make our choices and live with them. Another thing that is, another good thing is that it's good that free creatures and particularly human beings live together in groups, families, villages, cities, nations, and so on in which people are responsible to and for each other, okay? Well, one of the important things about a family is that members of a family are responsible to and for each other. We take care of each other. We, we care about each other. We, we, we make sacrifices 
for each other. And we're happy when other members of the family flourish. And in order for this to work, God can't be constantly jumping in every time, every time uh, something goes wrong. Uh, if, he, if he did, then our responsibility for each other would lose its meaning. Okay. If I if I knew for sure that God would pull you out of the way of the speeding taxi cab, then uh, I would have, I would not have any responsibility to do that myself. Mm-hmm. Lucky for you, I don't believe that God would necessarily do that. So I'm going to grab you. At least I hope I will. I think I will. <laughs> okay. So so we in families and in larger communities. We're responsible uh, for each other. This is, by the way, is one of the things that so many people somehow failed to grasp in the context of the COVID epidemic. People failed to realize that taking precautions is not just a matter of protecting yourself, but of protecting other people because you could be, without knowing it, spreading this virus, and this obviously happened a lot, you would be spreading this virus without knowing it. And so, so by refusing to take precautions, you are endangering other people. Well, if we had a pop, proper appreciation of our responsibility to care for each other, there would have been a lot more masking up and social distancing than actually happened, and there would have been many, many, many fewer deaths and serious illnesses. Well, that's illustrating the point. Going further, we can say that it's good that that these social institutions, social groups, exist because they have developed from within and through the actions and decisions of other of human beings. You know, we have the United States of America because we have the founding fathers, the people who signed the Declaration of Independence, who, who later drew up the Constitution and the various laws that we live under. None of this is necessarily perfect, but it's a good thing that we should have this kind of society in which we collectively are responsible for what happens and for how we live. Mm -hmm. And and once again, if if we suppose that God uh, should be frequently intervening to prevent the bad consequences of some of the decisions, the choices that we make, then basically God would be taking over and running the whole show and our responsibility for each other would be greatly diminished. Mm. And this would not be a good thing. So I think this gives us some perspective uh, in terms of what I would call a free will theodicy, uh, some perspective on why it's good for God to have allowed, created and allowed a world like this to exist, even if there is a lot of unnecessary evil and suffering in it. Now, uh, the same sort of thing can be said with regard to natural evil, although, of course, Chris, the details are different. But let me just sketch this, and, and if you want to raise some questions, I'm certainly willing mm-hmm. to, to consider that. Um, it's good that a world, a natural world, should exist. Uh, most people will accept that. You have to be 
extreme pessimist to say it's better that there should be nothing at all than a natural world. It's good that there should be a complex natural world with many different levels of creatures with different sorts of powers. There are bacteria and insects and plants and birds and mammals and rodents and all of the, the rich sorts of things. And the, the, the more we learn about this, the more really the more fascinating it becomes. If, if you mm -hmm. study anything about science, you, I think you have that impression. All these creatures in nature have different sorts of powers and abilities. And it's a good thing that we should have this, this kind of natural world. When I see a hummingbird um, sipping from one of the flowers on our porch, that's nice, that's neat, that's beautiful. Uh, we're, we're amazed and, and, and impressed. Um, think of how many athletic teams are, are named for interesting and unique and sometimes powerful and dangerous creatures. They're the lions, the bears, the tigers, the muskrats, um, the, the Michigan wolverines. Some of these are not, some of these animals you would not necessarily want to meet on the street, <laughs> but they impress us. They're, they're, they're marvelous. They're, they're tremendous uh, creatures. And it's, it's a good thing that this natural world should be allowed to function, even though this sometimes does cause suffering. Even though Rose Fawn may suffer as a result of a forest fire, maybe that fawn has had years, a few years or a few months at least of joy in the world it's living in. Uh, the, the world, it's not all bad, okay? There's mm -hmm. a, a lot of, uh, but it's good that there should be such a world and once again, uh, it's it's a good thing that God does not intervene all the time. And uh, another important point, this is where uh, the natural world connects with uh, our human world. In order for us as human beings to be able to act in a significant way in the world, we depend on the fact that nature is a predictable world. In order for me to be able to talk to you, I'm depending on my vocal cords to work, mm -hmm. the microphone on my iPad to work, the internet to work. The other day, as you know, it went out while we were trying mm -hmm. to record an episode. The internet works and carries the sound to you and I get your, your picture and voice back in the same way. We're dependent on the reliable operation of nature. And if God were continually interfering, all, all this would go away. We wouldn't be able to act in a significant way at all. So it's necessary that in the vast majority of cases, nature should be allowed to operate. Now that doesn't say that God can't intervene, that God can't work miracles, but miracles have to be somewhat rare not, not continual everyday occurrences. And then a further point that I, I would support is that it's good that this natural world has to a large extent, if possibly not completely, I don't know that, but to a large extent has been allowed to develop through mm -hmm. its own inherent powers. And here, of course, I'm talking about evolution, not just biological evolution, but there's cosmic evolution. So far as we know, the uni our universe started in the Big Bang, 
where, where all the matter in the universe was hyper concentrated and then it's exploded it began expanding out formed galaxies stars etc etc and then on earth life came into being and over billions of years has evolved into what we now have now i know a lot some christians are really nervous about this my answer to them is it's awfully clear from what we see around us that god likes evolution god likes to bring things about through evolutionary processes the evidence for that is overwhelming can't go into it now but there's uh, there's incredible amount of evidence that doesn't necessarily mean necessarily mean god cannot intervene or cause things to happen that wouldn't happen without his intervention i i don't know enough to say that one or the other but god likes evolution so we ought to get on the on the bandwagon and and start appreciating it ourselves. So anyway, uh, but I guess you know if, if you don't like you know, if you don't like this part of what I'm saying, you can just x that out and and uh, hopefully go along with the rest. Hmm. But it does. There is an enormous amount of evidence that we do live in an evolutionary world, and that God has created this world through a process of development and many christian thinkers have come to the conclusion that it's splendid that things are this way that as one person said uh, creation by a grand design is more impressive than creation bit by bit Mm. But again, you know, you don't have to buy that. But anyway, this, this is giving a kind of impression of what I think a, a, a natural order theodicy uh, should be. And it seems to me that by combining this natural order theodicy with a free will theodicy, we have at least a decent beginning to understanding something of why the world is is the way it is so mm. uh, let me stop there and see what what issues you, you want to bring up yeah well i think you beautifully kind of outlaid like the different options and like why you kind of end up with open theism is kind of like your thoughts on like the best explanation um for the problem of evil and like i guess for me as you've been talking one of the biggest things is like philosophically like i, I can see open theism um I mean, I have some questions, but for me, like my biggest struggles with it come from like the more like theological lens. So one of the things I wrote down that was in the questions I sent you was like, it seems like open theism, if we're going to like adopt open theism is a vast like departure from Christian tradition. So I'm wondering, like, um, it's been said like, you know, open theism doesn't really come around to like 50, 100 years ago or so. Um, and obviously Christian history is a couple thousand years and go further than back than that with Abrahamic faiths. So like, what would you say to someone who's like worried about the idea that open theism just like too vast of a departure from tradition. Like, should we be worried about that? Well, I mean, I think it is something to be concerned about. And if I, if I end up holding something that is contrary to what the, the vast majority, the majority of Christians in the past have held to, I, I think that's that's a reason to be worried. I, I agree. Mm -hmm. But but I guess I would try to I would try to persuade someone that that isn't necessarily a conclusive reason. Uh, and mm -hmm. let me just sketch this out. First of all, there have been big deviations from tradition in the past. Uh, for, uh, I suppose, in a sense, the biggest one. In, in the Western world is in the Protestant Reformation. Uh, this this over, overturned a lot of views, mm. uh, a lot of things that, in my opinion, are more fundamental and more earth-shaking than 
than open theism. Mm. I hope that's the case because I, we don't need wars of religion again over open theism. But uh, that was an, an enormous departure from tradition. And it was justified because people concluded that, first of all, that it was biblically supported and that the consequences of holding on to the tradition were much worse, much more serious than the prospect of, of deviating from tradition. Mm -hmm. Now, open theism, in a sense, isn't that big a deal. It isn't that big of a deviation from historic Arminianism, that is, from the views that accept the reality of free will, the power of free choice, and, and hold that God in his governing the world uh, allows and, and deals with human freedom, even though free humans do things that God does not want them to do. So it, it's, it's not that huge of a deviation. Mm -hmm. The major creeds, uh, like the Nicene Creed, which is the, the most wide, and Apostles Creed and Nicene Creed are the most widely accepted Christian creeds. They say nothing that is particularly relevant to open theism. Uh, there have been a few thinkers from time to time in Christian history that have, uh, let's say, touched on this idea or come close to it. It's never been a widespread view until fairly recently. I, I certainly admit that. Mm. Yeah, well, I think, think that's... Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, I, I like what you're saying. Like, if we're going to say, hey, the Protestant Revolution, that's a much bigger shift than, like, just shifting to open theism. So, like, if we're okay with that, then open theism, it's a little bit further, but it's not another, like, it's not, a, like, a whole other, like, Protestant Reformation. Yeah, I, I, think, that's, I think that's exactly right. You know, so, uh, there's, there's a saying is that um, uh, attributed to a famous, uh, it's called Vincent's Monitor, that we should, we, we as Christians should believe what has been accepted always, everywhere, and by everyone. Well, you know, you look carefully, and there isn't a whole lot that has been accepted by Christians always, everywhere, and by everyone. So uh, the the you know I, I I respect tradition. I think tradition is important, but mm. I don't absolutize it. Okay, mm -hmm. and and of course, and I will point out that there is certainly a biblical basis for questioning absolute. Uh, complete, absolute, certain divine foreknowledge. Uh, even though that has been a traditional view. One, one, one little bit of biblical data, this has been developed by a scholar by the name of Terence Fretheim, uh, is the numerous places in the Old Testament where it says, as we've, as it's usually translated, God repented. That's saying God was sorry, or God changed his mind. God, it's saying, it implies quite clearly that things didn't work out the way God wanted them to, okay? Mm -hmm. And so God had a change of plans. And, and this is not something that just crops up once or twice and, you know, you can rush it off. I think there's something like 35 times in the Old Testament where it says God changed his mind, God repented. Um, 
an interesting example. There's a, a professor of Old Testament by the name of John Goldingway, uh, who, Goldingay, who teaches at Fuller Theological Seminary, which, as you may know, is a, a pretty conservative uh, evangelical school. And Goldingay became convinced simply from his own study of the Old Testament that the idea of God having complete knowledge of the future was a mistake. Golding had, I guess he had never heard of open theism and it was his own students who pointed out to him that in view of the view that he had come to, simply from his study of the Old Testament, he had become an open theist, mm. which I think is, is kind of telling. The, the, the book that got open, open theism started for the general public is entitled uh, The Openness of God, a Biblical Challenge to the Traditional Understanding of God. Well, I think that's a fair, uh, that, that, that title, but that subtitle, by the way, came from University Press. But I think that's a, a fair, um, a fair uh, description of the situation. So all I would say is, okay, I'm not saying that you should ignore tradition, that you should count it as of no importance. Give mm. us a hearing. If in the end, if you can't uh, stand the book creation to that tradition to that extent, okay, God bless you, but but give us a hearing. Mm. Well, Dr. Hasker, there's so much here. Um, thank you so much for coming on today. Anything else you want to say before we wrap up? No, I want to thank you for the hospitality, and it's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, and thank you so much for coming on. I found this super informative um, and it's helped me get more clarity in thinking about like different views and like what they think about the problem of evil. And then like your case for open theism um, is like a good answer to the problem of evil. It's definitely something worth thinking about and I'm gonna have to think a lot more on it. So thank you. Um, and thank you everyone who tuned in today. Really appreciate you. If you're new here, subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. Uh, really appreciate your support. And if you value our support, you become a patron at patreon.com slash apologetics. Little as a dollar a month, your support means a lot. But Dr. Hasker, thank you so much today. I've really loved this conversation. Thank you. God bless you. God bless everyone.